When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, we've heard from a whole range of medical experts, particularly those who work directly in the area of public health and specifically, I suppose, those who work in relation to epidemics. My guest today works in another area of medicine, one that has also been hugely impacted by the health emergency. And he has some interesting thoughts on where we are right now, both in terms of the health service and society at large. Professor Ronan Collins is consultant physician in geriatric and stroke medicine at Tala University Hospital in Dublin. Ronan, you're welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. Ronan, if I could start by asking you about a piece you wrote in the Business Post a few weeks ago in which you set out how the virus is impacting on society and the health service. And you wrote the following. Scaring people away from hospital attendance when our normal urgent healthcare needs continue with or without COVID-19 is already causing harm. Already, we have had stroke patients not attending in time for treatment because they were understandably frightened. We have surgeons rationing urgently needed and life-determining surgery. That's a pretty stark picture, Ronan, of how this is impacting on people who are not directly affected by the virus and particularly people in the older age group. Yeah, Mick, and uh, thanks again for the opportunity to chat with you this morning. Many of us in different branches of medicine are scratching our heads inside in the hospital asking where have all the patients gone? Um, The cynics, of course, might look and say, God, the health services never worked so efficiently. But we all realise what is happening here. People are not coming uh, to their general practitioners in the first instances with alarm symptoms um, that may or may not be serious. And then the second issue is that when they are getting very serious symptoms, they're minimizing them and rationalizing them in their own minds and we're building up a big store um, of problems uh, when this uh, current uh, phase of the uh, pandemic subsides. So for example in my own specific area I work in general geriatric medicine is of special interest in strokes so I would run the acute stroke service with colleagues and talking to other colleagues around the country and indeed in the UK because of a weekly meeting with my colleagues in the UK as well our stroke attendances are down by 50%. Now, stroke hasn't gone away, so there must be people sitting at home with alarm symptoms where their speech has suddenly gone funny or they've had a weakness in their arm. And in fact, I've seen a couple of cases recently myself where people did try and rationalise away the symptoms and minimise them because they were afraid to come down to emergency departments. And by the time people did present, It was too late for us to try and do something to kind of, if you like, cure the stroke in its acute stages. And then you're trying to play catch up and modify the physical impairment that people have been left with. That's fairly serious, Ronald, because my understanding, obviously correct me, is that one of the crucial aspects to suffering any form of stroke is the speed at which some form of treatment can be accessed. That's absolutely true. But of course, if a person is so frightened that they won't come down to the hospital, they're not going to ring the ambulance. 
Um, and again, you know, I've had a case there recently during the week because I would do general take as well currently, uh, where a person came in with cancer that's probably a bit more advanced than it should be and had been delaying kind of over the last two months just worrying about the general state of the emergency departments even before this because of the trolley crisis and now specifically. And the one message I myself and many of my colleagues would want to get out there is that urgent care is care as normal. And we have our emergency departments segregated to try and protect people from what would be likely um, COVID-19 cases versus not likely COVID-19 cases. And you're much more likely to suffer harm by the illness you have rather than the illness you might get. Okay, and in in more general terms then, Ronan, on the ground, a a very big hospital like Tala, within your sphere of medicine, have you noticed, um, for instance, capacity issues, things being pushed to one side because there is this huge number of people who are having to come in as a result of the virus? Well, I think at the current stage, we're just at the start of the major, um, if you like, increase in cases. So we've been doing a lot of preparatory work. And I suppose in the preparatory work, obviously none of us um, have lived through a pandemic. None of us will have seen what we are currently seeing and what's about to happen. And so there's a degree of uncertainty as to how much preparedness and how much you, um, if you like, delay or if you uh, are put things um, on a kind of a less urgent priority while you're waiting for the surge in activity. Uh, And so, yes, we are kind of changing medical practice to a degree, but the urgent stuff must always remain urgent. And people need to be reassured that we can look after your stroke, we can look after your heart attack, we can investigate and treat your early warning symptoms of cancer if you still have these things. Um, And if they're very urgent, obviously, like central chest pain with a heart attack or the symptoms of face, arm or leg weakness and stroke, you have to ring 999 and come down uh, to the emergency department. For the other things like that may be serious, but that you're worried about and that you would normally be worrying about, you really should bring your general practitioner and get some advice on this because we are potentially storing up a whole load of problems, as I said, once this crisis enters into a more settled phase. Uh, and then the health service would be under even more pressure. But more importantly than that, patients could suffer harm. And in your experience, Ronan, the reluctance to attend at a hospital, for example, is that directly down to a fear of infection or just a general wish to stay away from a hospital because of the growing knowledge that things are being subjected to far more pressure at the moment? Yeah, and I suppose when I wrote the, the Business Post article, I was very keen to say to colleagues like yourself making journalism as well, that the content of what we put out needs to be certainly realistic and certainly report the truth, but we also need to kind of put it in context. So, for example, even if I go back outside of COVID-19, back to the trolley crisis, there was times when people would not come up to our emergency department in my own hospital because of the prevailing reporting in the media of how bad the trolley crisis was. When in reality, if you look at the trolley crisis, it's a bit like looking at the traffic in the city. You get surges and peaks, peak times, and certainly things are quite bad at those stages. But there can be other times in our emergency departments when things are very quiet. And urgent care is always facilitated. Urgent care is always care as normal. 
there is no differentiation in that. You would sail straight through if things are urgent. And, and these are the things that could be life-threatening, that could leave you physically impaired or functionally impaired. Uh, and you must attend if you have these symptoms and be reassured that we can look after you safely, we will look after you safely, and we will protect you from the risk of infection. Well, just in relation to that, Ronan, in, in, in terms of the trolley crisis, as you say, that always has been a major issue in the media. But when you look at scenarios like, for instance, the, the INMO, the Irish Nurses Midwives Organisation, a number of uh, doctors' organisations, they've been the ones to a large extent, I, I would suggest, uh, driving the idea that we have a major trolley crisis. I mean, are, are you suggesting that perhaps that was somewhat overblown in the media in general? Uh, no, I know, I'll take it back and make I'm not having to go at journalists. I know, I, I don't mean having to go, no, I, and I understand you're not, but I'd be interested in your perspective in that regard. I think, listen, there is a problem. We have, we have a problem with hospital capacity and we all recognise that, but we also have to recognise that the public are listening to what the medical professions are saying, the nursing professions are saying, and what the media are saying about the emergency departments. I've had people come up to emergency department and certainly look with wonder that it wasn't a battlefield. And certainly we do have very bad times as well, where things are pretty chaotic. I'm not in any way minimalizing this, but what I am saying is that we also have to get the message across to people that although things might be crowded, if you are seriously ill, you must still attend, particularly if you've got serious alarm warning symptoms like crushing sinful chest pain or symptoms of stroke, because otherwise uh, you're not attending, it seriously endangers your health. Yeah, I know, and I take your point too, Ron, and, and just a, a, a brief vignette. I, I did an experience a while back with my young fella. We thought he'd have the headwind into the emergency department. We were waiting there for a long number of hours. Now, what I did realise, to be fair, is that ultimately he'd been assessed and it was regarded that he wasn't vital and I could see a number of other people going in being attended. So I take your point absolutely that, uh, that, that there are times when things are not as, as clogged up there as... Um, we might have the impression it is that way all the time. Back with the current emergency. Ron, I was talking to you earlier and you mentioned to me that you were expecting this pandemic. I think the world was expecting the pandemic, certainly. And in fact, I think um, one of our own leading virology scientists in UCC, I, I saw her being interviewed on uh, the news um, or one of the um, RT programs recently. Uh, and, you know, I think from an interview of last year and had suggested that this pandemic was going to come at some stage. I think we got a warning with the SARS um, epidemic back in kind of, um, although it was relatively localised back in 2009, 2010. Uh, and there have been previous out minor outbreaks of the MERS virus as well. There was always one of these viruses was going to catch on. And in particular, when we live in such a global economic community, and if you have a global economic community, that means you have a global health community because transmissible diseases will then transmit very quickly. And it's probably no coincidence that this outbreak happened most seriously first in Europe and Italy uh, because of the extensive trade between Italy and China um, around what I believe might be um, the fabric industry, etc. So if you have a global economic community, there's a global health community and there's a risk then that transmissible diseases will fly very quickly. So, for example, if I go back to the H1N1 or the bird flu of 2009, which first appeared in California, uh, that would be an example of a disease that spread very quickly. Uh, now, it appeared in California in April. 
uh, and by May it was in 21 countries and 41 states of the US, uh, and that's how, how, how fast it spread. Now, we were lucky uh, that that H1N1 wasn't terribly uh, serious, although it killed 200,000 people. A normal flu season would kill about somewhere about 250 to 500,000 people um, and would be certainly nothing like the pandemic uh, flu of 1918, which killed millions and millions of people. Yeah, and just in that vein, I mean, I think absolutely. I've seen other people, particularly in in public health and world health, mentioning that there was an expectation of this. But I wonder, were were the public authorities, the political authorities, were they as tuned in on on this basis? And I think we've seen this in relation to other things, that unless a threat is imminent, it would seem the main authorities have a problem uh, addressing it on the basis that uh, it could clog up what they might see as uh, the day-to-day functioning of various governments. Well, that's possibly true, and I'm not a politician or an economist. Uh, And I suppose what I would add is that after the last SARS um, outbreak and indeed the MERS virus, certainly a lot of public health people have modelled what this would look like if it happened. So people were worried. For example, I know they did very extensive modelling in uh, in America after, and again, if a virus, if an epidemic is to transmit and be sustainable, uh, number one, how transmissible it is and how severe it is dictates whether this will sustain itself or not. But certainly they have modelled this in America. For example, there was a flu, a new flu, um, described in China in 2013, the H7N9 flu, I think. And they modelled that in America as to what might happen uh, if there was an attack rate of 20%. That's one in five people get sick with it. And they recognised in America that there would be about 4.3 million hospitalizations, up to half a million deaths, up to 60,000 ventilators required, up to 7.3 billion surgical masks required. So clearly someone in America in 2013 had modelled in preparation for this. The fact that that modelling didn't result in political preparation for a pandemic is another matter. It may be that maybe we're overly confident in our medical ability to deal with such uh, outbreaks when they occur. It may be that for economic reasons, nobody wanted to be talking about the possibility of this or maybe limiting stricter kind of Um, infection controls at borders and things like that. Who knows? But in reality, I think people who work in epidemiology and in public health and even in the World Health Organization were expecting this. Ronan, geriatric medicine is one of your specialities. And as we've seen, this virus, it, it disproportionately, unfortunately, affects older people. We've also seen a number of outbreaks in the nursing home area. How do you think in terms of preparedness and how we've dealt with it initially in relation to areas like nursing homes? How has that gone? Um, I think initially, to be fair to my colleagues who are leading out in the National Care Programme for Older People, I think they've dealt with it very well, considering that this is an unprecedented event. Um, And while we might have been expecting a pandemic, I don't think we were expecting it to maybe uh, to occur at this scale and maybe to spread so quickly. Um, and I sort of caught up. You always are vulnerable in any institution, particularly in nursing homes, but even in schools, etc. when there's outbreaks of transmissible disease, that's because of the close contact of people, because people are cared for by carers who are moving from patient to patient. And this also applies for hospitals, uh, that there's a risk that the infection could run through an institution quite quickly. I don't think that older people themselves are more likely to pick up the infection compared to younger people, but obviously, 
it has greater implications if an older person gets it. Uh, but I would also say to older people, and this is true, uh, that the vast majority, so for example, if you were in your 80s and you picked up this, 85% of people in their 80s will survive this. Uh, we have limited data in people in their 90s, but even in their 90s, four out of five people will survive this infection. So while this infection is severe, certainly, I would also want to give heart to older people who might be listening to this blog that, listen, it is it is manageable for most older people and most older people will pull through this. And I don't want people to be overly terrified. Going back to your questions about the nursing homes, I suppose in reality, uh, when you get an outbreak amongst the healthcare workers um, and our current policy, as you know, is to follow the South Korean model of the swab to identify and to isolate. So many healthcare workers will have caught this and will be healthy. A proportion of them will not, obviously, like the rest of the general population, will become severely ill. And a proportion of my uh, colleagues in all branches of healthcare may die from this as well. But if you are isolating people who are positive, then that is going to create an immediate manpower problem within our nursing homes. And so that's one thing that we probably hadn't really prepared for uh, nationally, but that's you know, that's because this was an unprecedented event. Yes, and I think there may also be a case that, for example, in a lot of nursing homes, you would have a lot of assistant care personnel, people who I think it would be fair to say in many instances are working for very low wages, could also possibly be living in cramped conditions and also interacting with other people in the same sector. And uh, whether situations like that were given full cognizance in terms of uh, some element of attempting to social distancing and what have you. But as you say, I suppose, Ronan, you're talking there about a severe manpower problem if you attempt to protect everybody to the best of ability in that regard. Yeah, it's true, but you do, hit, you do hit on a very valid point, Mick. And I suppose it's up to us, not during wartime now, to maybe to have this debate, but subsequently we do need to have this debate about how do we value our care of our most vulnerable older citizens. Irish society, and even if you go back along history, if you go back into Brehan law, Celtic society valued its older people and its elders. And I suppose how our older people are looked after uh, in later life is a function, number one, of how our nursing homes look, how they're designed in terms of quality of life and infection control, uh, how our staff are valued and paid for looking after the patients who, um, who are residing in nursing homes and indeed how we remunerate that on a cost basis, for example, in general. To give you a simple example, while I would have been a great um, fan of what Mary Harney did in terms of the fair deal, because it gave people choice for the first time in accessing nursing home care, one of the criticisms would be that I suppose sometimes that, that if you like, the, the monetary value offered to the nursing home for that bed would not include any luxuries or any necessities that I would consider, uh, for example, like sometimes continence wear or even access to maintenance physiotherapy, which have to be topped up then uh, by families. And I think that's wrong. So we do need to have a whole debate uh, about uh, nursing home care and extended care and indeed care at home and home care packages um, again after this crisis is over. But now is probably not the time for this during wartime. Very true. And 
I suppose, Ron, on just a, on a human level, what you're talking about there, and I, I observed this myself in terms of, of, of uh, relatives, I would have known that at a point when, when people enter a, a nursing home, the care that is provided by the care assistance is so primal that very often the elder person probably in some instances feels more attached to those people at that stage of life very often, even than family members. It's that primal at that stage of life. I think the bond between carers and people who are cared for is very strong. And I would have witnessed that myself, particularly where people are in residential care facilities for quite some time. And they develop very close uh, relationships. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think the overall, I suppose the overarching thing is that for us as a society to have this discussion about how we value our older people um, and how that, you know, that narrative is expressed uh, really in terms of how we care for those people when they become frail and unwell. Roland, the piece you wrote, you also made mention of the, the changes that within the health system already and uh, you pointed out issues like work practice in hospital as elsewhere with less hospital footfall and travelling, more remote conferencing and more telehealth. Do you think these type of changes, because they've been thrust on us at the moment, could end up being bedded down and lead to, I suppose, in one way, a more effective service? But is it also possible a depersonalised service in, in, in other ways? It certainly will be a different service. There's no doubt about that, Mick. It will be a different service. For example, as I'm talking to you here now, I've done my ward round remotely myself this morning by contact rate. I have to, um, I'm waiting for a kind of a swab result myself. So I've done a virtual ward round. I have a telemedicine where I can treat acute stroke patients in the emergency department with a colleague on the ground, see the scans, direct the treatment. And we've had that system in place for quite some time. So yes, we are doing more remote working. For example, we're continuing our early supported discharge program for stroke patients so they can leave hospital early and we can do the physiotherapy and occupational therapy with patients in as far as is practical remotely by teaching the exercises and doing telehealth. So a lot of that is going on. A lot of our international academic conferences, for example, I'm talking with colleagues regularly in the UK about the current crisis and its impact. Uh, on stroke patients and older patients, a lot more Zoom meetings. So I think there will be a lot of benefits to the environment as well. Maybe there'll be a lot less travelling around and a lot more kind of Zoom conferencing or uh, WebEx conferencing uh, to get the message. And I think we've become better than that. I don't think it'll completely uh, replace the impersonal um, treatment of patients or the impersonal contact um, in terms of the medical scientific community but things will be changed and they will be changed for the better, I think. How exactly do you do a virtual ward round, Rona? There's a number of ways of doing it, but very simply, I'm using a secure link for, from my phone uh, to my um, to my registrar and we're literally going from patient to patient and I'm with a little iPad and I'm talking to the patient and I'm seeing the scans and the blood results and I, I'm directing my... You now, listen, that's not to take the place of being there in person. I just have to be off uh, at, at currently. Um, so, But it's just a way, another way of working. Absolutely, yeah, definitely innovative. And similarly, Ronan, as we've noticed as a result of the emergency, the government has effectively temporarily certainly but effectively created a single tier health system um do you think that because we've done this for the emergency because it shows what may be possible will it speed up the move towards a single tier system as um advocated in in the launch care plan 
Well, it may well do. I, I have to say personally, Mick, I, I don't agree with it. Um, I don't work in a private hospital, by the way. Let me state that first of all. But the overall notion of a single uh, tier health system, uh, while it's admirable in one sense, because what it's talking about is equity of access. And equity of access is very important in our health service. There must be equity of access. But what I really fear about the notion of a one tier um, health service, for example, within our teaching hospitals, is that I really do worry if we became totally dependent on government funding, that we would fall very far behind the curve uh, in terms of having the necessary technology, having the necessary equipment, um, and funding all that if times became tough economically. And what I'm really trying to say is that our teaching university hospitals need that private money coming in from the insurance, uh, number one, to fund their activity. They're not for profit hospitals, so that money goes back into the treatment pool for everybody. And for example, myself, I, I have health insurance, but if something was wrong with me, I would like to try and spend it in my own teaching not for profit hospital because the money would go back into the system. I don't want to jump any queue, but I feel I should afford, I can afford it, so I feel I should insure myself, and then I feel I should be allowed to spend that insurance in a not-for-profit teaching hospital, so the money goes back into the system. And this is about equity of access, and I think that's the key point about a single-tier uh, health service, not the economic model behind it. But let me give you an example of the potential benefits of this. Let's say there's a waiting list for an MRI scanner of a year on the public system. If I knew that I could, for example, do 20% private scans as an institution on an MRI scan and I was regulated and allowed to do that, I'd be down the bank tomorrow morning, putting out the business plan, buying another MRI scanner, running through more public patients from nine to five, and then run it for two or three hours after that uh, private scans to fund it. Now, the problem is it needs to be regulated, but our current system is like this. We have a waiting list for all patients, and we then have to buy the extra private scans from private companies who are often set up across the road from teaching hospitals, if you more or less competing and taking the income from the public system. And so what I really say is that I think we do need a mixed economy. I think real people think that single tier health service is a socialist principle. I have to say, having worked in the NHS myself, I formed the opinion lots of times that the single tier NHS system was just benefiting well off middle class people who frequently lived abroad for nine months of the year in Spain and other places. I think we do need to, if you like, step up to the plate if we really believe in protecting um, people who are vulnerable and that our health service is there for everybody and that people who can afford to pay a little bit more should have themselves insured, should try and spend that money in not-for-profit teaching university hospitals and should not expect to be jumping the queue. Yes, to be fair, Ronan, the reality is that people in that position will be jumping the queue and do jump the queue and do not have to suffer the long waiting list of those who are on the public system. But this is the point I'm trying to make, Dobik, is that we can expand capacity with increased income as well. And, and, and that debate does need to be had. And I think the problem with the system that used to, we used to have with private practice in the public hospitals is that it was very poorly regulated. Uh, and I would, be, I, you know, I would have seen that myself at times. 
but I do think that that 600 million uh, euros that are public teaching not-for-profit hospitals get from insurers is very important. And I'd like to say as well, I'm not speaking, because I'm sure people are listening to this and saying, well, of course you'd say that, because you want private patients coming to you as well in a public hospital. But to be honest with you, just to explain the scale of this to people, if a person came in who happened to have insurance, for example, say under normal circumstances, teaching hospital with a pneumonia and spent five days in a teaching hospital, the consultant would get about 280 euros gross, I think, gross before tax. But the institution would get somewhere between seven and eight thousand euros. That's a lot of money for a not-for-profit hospital, particularly some of the hospitals that are serving the poorer areas. And so what I'm saying is that we need to review this whole thing and understand the economics behind it as well and actually maybe take the consultants out of the equation altogether if that's what's required. It's very interesting, Ron. Just briefly, does that mean that in general you wouldn't be in favour of slanch care and do you believe that that is an opinion that many fellow consultants would share? Well, it's not a matter of a, a very strong political stance, Mick. What I would be very worried about is that if we were totally dependent on government funding, we would not be able to keep up with technology and we would fall very behind the curve. A bit like, for example, the VA system in America at one stage in its history became very underfunded. And for the first time, I have to say this honestly, for the first time in my medical experience, it was always the thing to get a job in a, um, um, you know, a teaching hospital. Um, you know, they were the sought after jobs. But now we're falling so far behind the technology and what some of the other better funded private hospitals can do. We're no longer seen very much as maybe being on top of things. Um, and so that needs to change because that is an absolute anatomy to me that our teaching university hospitals are not the best hospitals in the state. Very interesting. Ronan, finally, how do you think we're going to come out the other side of this? Well, I suppose... First of all, I think there'll be a big change in terms of how hospitals see themselves and how the public see the hospitals. And what I mean by that, for example, it's weird. I worked in production at one stage myself uh, locally in Eli Lilly and Kinsale during the summer. Um, and one of the things when I was a student, and one of the things I learned, of course, on the production floor is that, you know, it was expected practice that you showered and changed going into the work floor environment and you showered and changed coming out of it. That does not exist or that culture does not exist in our hospitals. And that needs to change, number one, um, because these are dangerous uh, working environments at times where there's a lot of infection around. The second thing is that the public also need to realise that hospitals themselves can be dangerous places. They're reacting now to the current crisis by not coming to the hospitals when they need to. But they also need to know that in normal times, visiting the hospitals or having lots of traffic up to the hospitals does increase the potential for infection coming in and indeed coming out of the hospital back out into the community. And so I say that relationship will change. I think the current crisis, I think the chief medical officer and I think the chief clinical officer, uh, Dr. Hull and Dr. Henry, uh, and their team have done a great job so far together with the public health officials in trying to bend the curve and hopefully we will flatten it. If we will flatten it, I think we will be able to um, get by in terms of um, in terms of managing the caseload that comes to us. And I think it's crucial that the public understand all this talk about flattening the curve is for two things. Number one, to buy medical science more time. Each week you can buy us. The more we're learning about what drugs might work, how this virus is behaving, how better to treat patients. And of course, we're getting ever closer to um, a vaccine. 
Uh, the second reason it's very important is that if the caseload comes to us in a manageable format, we will be able to provide the best care we can for everyone. It's the big surge in numbers, as people may have seen and may have frightened a lot of people in Italy and in Spain, that will 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 be make it very difficult for the healthcare to manage. And that's why it's very important uh, that we do try and flatten and bend this curve uh, as much as possible. The longer term, Mick, I have to be honest with you, I'm not an epidemiologist, but the real worry is whether we will have sustained transmission of this infection uh, before a, a vaccine comes. And a vaccine will not be here in 2020 in all likelihood, although several of them are in human trials already. And sustainability of uh, the infection is dependent on number one, how transmissible the infection is, and this seems to be fairly transmissible, and two, and how severe the infection is. And ironically, sometimes if the infection is more severe, you can actually identify and isolate the cases faster and sooner, and so it limits the sustainability. And there's a, uh, there's a, a figure in epidemiological medicine called the R0 figure, and that determines uh, and how sustainable um, an infection might be, and we're not sure yet with this one. But there is a potential that this could be sustainable, and I suppose if we looked at the last great world pandemic of 1918, uh, there's a potential that the second season of this uh, could be a real, um, could be a real, uh, if you like, uh, increase in numbers. But what I would say to people in a more optimistic note is that we'll be better prepared. We will know more if we do get a second wave back of this uh, later on in the winter of, of the coming year. Ronan, well, all I can say is thanks very much for finishing on the optimistic note, but thanks also for a very extremely interesting conversation. Ronan Collins, Professor Ronan Collins of Tala University Hospital, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mick. Thanks very much. That's it for today, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. You can get the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the usual platforms, and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.